when I began preaching through the Gospel of John, I had no idea how long it would take. But it has been a fun journey, and today we're going to get back to it, and we're going to finish the Gospel of John. We've taken some time out for some other series of messages, but we're going to start today in the Gospel of John, chapter 18, in this section that is called by many folks the Passion of Christ. And it covers all of the events leading up to and including the, his death, burial, and resurrection, and, and really the end of what we call the gospel accounts of the life of Christ. And so today we're going to watch him start that journey, the first event, if you will. I suppose in some ways it's the second event. Follow with me as I read John 18, starting in verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words... He went out with his disciples over the brook Kidron, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. And Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. Then Judas, having received a detachment of troops and officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, came there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that would come upon him, went forward and said to them, Whom are you seeking? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. And Judas, who betrayed him, also stood with them. Now when he said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Then he asked them again, Whom are you seeking? (laughs) Don't you love that? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And he answered, I have told you that I am he. Therefore, if you seek me, let these go their way, that the saying might be fulfilled which he spoke. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost none. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword into the sheath. Shall I not drink the cup? which my Father has given me. Uh, Starting in verse 1, we see the words, these words. When he had spoke these words, obviously it's referring to what has just gone on in John chapters 13 through 17 that we commonly refer to as the upper room discourse or the upper room teaching. Jesus met with his disciples in an upper room and they had the Passover feast that all good Jewish people would have in that time. And then Jesus used that time to teach a series of things. And so when that event was done, when that teaching was done, they left the upper room, they left the city of Jerusalem, and they walked down the hill and across a little creek and up the other side onto the Mount of Olives. There was a garden there where they were used to meeting. It's entirely likely that as most farms in that day did, this would have had a wall around it, and perhaps it was a private place that they could get away whenever they wanted to have some private time. Jesus finished this evening with his men in the room, and he prayed his high priestly prayer, and he comes out now to the garden. Now you'll notice, if you're familiar with, the, with these events that Jesus went through, that there are several events not recorded in the Gospel of John. John, as the other authors did, uh, John chose events to fit a theme that God was using him to put forward. In the Gospel of Matthew, we see Jesus 
put forward as the king of Israel, the Messiah, the, the prophesied deliverer. In the Gospel of Luke, we see him put forward uh, as a uh, human being, if you will. He is related all the way to Adam, according to the Gospel of Luke. In the Gospel of Mark, we see him as a servant, somebody humbly serving other people. And in the Gospel of John, we see him as the Son of God. We see him as divine. And so John chooses just those events to emphasize that theme. There's no conflict between these books. They are four sides of one object, and we turn them and see the whole truth as we study the whole Bible. But John chooses just those events that are going to contribute to our understanding of the person of Christ as the Son of God, as divine. And so we see him leave the place of his teaching and come out into this garden. And here comes Judas with the troops that are going to arrest Christ. Verse 2, Judas who betrayed him knew the place for Jesus often met there with his disciples. Then Judas having received a detachment of troops... The uh, NIV and the New King James Version both use the word detachment. The King James Version uses the word band. And the literal word actually is a a band or a circle. The idea is a small group, a, a defined small group within an army. Now, this word in Greek was often used of a Latin word, which meant, we would call it today, a battalion. Now, I'm not a real army buff. We've, we've got a couple of uh, retired army folks here. How many, fo- how many troops are in a battalion? Roughly 750. And that's how many they would have in a Roman legion. The legionnaire was a soldier who was part of a legion. It would be anywhere from 600 to 1,000 troops. And so we'll call 750. And this word in Greek was the Greek word that corresponded to the Latin word. So it could have been that they sent several hundred troops to arrest Christ. Now we think, isn't that overkill? <laughs> um, if we, now here we don't know the specific numbers, but if you wanted to later, write down Acts 23, and you can do some research there. And there was a point at which the Apostle Paul had to be moved from one place to another, and he was a Roman citizen under accusation, and so he was going for a trial. And at that time, they used 470 troops to move him. 200 soldiers, it says, 70 horsemen, and 200 spearmen. <laughs> Now, in, in, the, in Paul's case, they wanted to be sure that as a Roman citizen, he was not harmed in the process of getting justice. Much like we see a, an accused criminal with a bulletproof vest on today, something like that. In that day, there was no force like overwhelming numbers. And so if they wanted to be sure something happened, they would send several hundred troops out. And in fact, here, one of the reasons that we would think this is a large group of troops is because the word captain is used, and it's a word that has to do with the rank of a guy who would have controlled a battalion of troops or a legion of troops. The Jewish leaders who hated Jesus went to the Roman government and said, we want to arrest this guy. Now, we've had trouble in the past trying to get this done. And they said, take the whole legion. So here comes the whole legion of troops with their commander to arrest Jesus. Now, 
Now, how does that work out for them? <laughs> Jesus says, and, and let me just make one more note here too. Um, where does it say, verse 3, they came with lanterns and torches and weapons. Now, why would they do that? Judas said, hey, they're going to be out in this garden. And the, I think what's inferred there is the Romans thought this is going to be a search and arrest mission. These guys are going to run. And we're going to have to use a torch to go all through the garden to find them. And they've got weapons because, you know, they might fight because he's talked about being a king. And so here they come. And what does Jesus do? Does he go, run, fellas? No, he walks right up and he says, who are you looking for? And they say, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. And what happens? Boom, it blows them over. <laughs> now, these are Roman soldiers. Okay? When you think of uh, military people, you have a, let's, let's say a U.S. Army Marine, or U.S. Army, sorry guys, sorry Marines. Where are you, Dan? I'm sorry, I'm sorry, brother. You got a Marine, okay, or maybe a, uh, uh, what do you call the, airborne, an airborne army guy. You know, high, a little more highly trained. And then you have a soldier. <laughs> in our day and age, we see a 13-year-old boy recruited in Sudan with a gun in his arm, you know, and we're going, oh, no comparison. These are the Roman legionnaires, okay? And they come along, and they are blown over by Jesus going, I am that's what he said. He didn't say, I am he. He used the words that indicate the name of God. The word he is supplied in our translation. It makes more sense to us in English. But he wasn't trying to say, I'm the guy you're looking for. He was saying, I am. It's the name of God from the Old Testament that the Jewish people who revered God so much would not even pronounce. I am. And they were blown over. And then they got up, dusted themselves off, and he said, who are you looking for? <laughs> Jesus of Nazareth. And then he says, okay, if that's who you're looking for, I'm he, I've already told you that, these guys are not he. You let them go. And John adds the note, and of course, if you know your Bible history, you know that the Apostle John wrote this gospel after the events were all done. And John is looking back in retrospect, and he goes, Jesus did that so that none of those would be lost. Because he said, I will not lose anybody who's following me. Now, if you really want to... I don't know if you've thought about it in these terms... Uh, you know, if you're a movie watcher, as I am from time to time, you see some of these fantastical things that are, you know, some, some super weapon that just dissolves things, you know, or whatever. Colossians 1.17 says that Jesus literally holds the world together. So if he had not said, I am, but had said, liquefy, We're getting close to the point of this passage. OK? 
Okay? He did this thing of blowing everybody over, Judas included. What do you think's going through Judas's mind? And, yeah, whoops. And here's the disciples standing there going, ooh, never seen that before. They're thinking this through. They're thinking this through. Now, think about something else. Here are some other times when people tried to arrest Jesus. So all those in the synagogue, when they heard the things, the things that Jesus was teaching, they were filled with wrath, and they rose up, and they threw him out of the city, and they led him to the brow of the hill on which their city was built, that they might throw him down the cliff. And then passing through the midst of him, he just went on his way. Or what about this time? Then they took up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple, going through the middle of them. He walked right through the middle of the crowd, just walked away. What about this time? Therefore they sought again to arrest him, but he escaped out of their hand. Later in the book of John, we read this. Then Jesus answered to Pilate, who was interrogating him, You could have no power at all against me unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, the one who delivered you to me has a greater sin. What we understand here very clearly is summed up, I believe, in these two scriptures. He says to the disciples at a point in time, you go up to this feast, I am not going to go up because it is not my time, and that my time hasn't fully come. And then this, nobody takes my life from me. I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it up. This command I have received from my Father. This is the point of this passage. God orchestrated these events with these Roman soldiers and Judas and the apostles in the garden to make it very clear, you have come to arrest me, I understand your part in this play, but you need to understand whether you have 750 or 7,050, that is not going to make a difference. You will only arrest me when I say it's time. God is telling us about the power of Christ. He's telling us also about the love of Christ. I think the point here is more about his power as the divine person who is going to be our Savior. And as such, we need to reflect on that today and to understand this as it comes to our life. Christ is more powerful than any threat that will come against us. If he could do what he did here, he can care for us. Tradition tells us, not rock-solid history, but the best traditional history that we have, tells us that the apostles, all of them except John, were martyred for their faith. They were killed by those who hated them for what they stood for. Tradition tells us they tried to kill John and they couldn't, so they exiled him to the Isle of Patmos where he died an old man away from everybody. But they did not die on the night that the soldiers came to arrest Jesus because Jesus said, it is not their time. You're not going to touch one of them. you here to arrest me? I'm ready to go. But you are not arresting them because it's not their time. 
God had determined for them as he has determined for us what our lives will look like and when they will end and he did not let anyone intervene in that plan. That's what this verse is about. No temptation or testing has come upon you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation will make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. Those apostles would have caved if the soldiers had come after them and they'd all died or given up their faith. God knew that. They were not ready yet. In fact, they weren't ready until the Holy Spirit came on the day of Pentecost and infused them with His power. And then they were ready. And then they stood straight up to the government officials and said, well, whether we should obey you or God, you tell us. And the government officials beat them. And they went right outside and started preaching right again. Nothing stopped them once it was the right time. But God said, now is not your time. How do you know if God is going to protect you from the threat that has come into your life. If you've been in my Sunday school class, this is a trick question. How do you know if God is going to protect you from the threat that comes into your life? If it's there, He will protect you. Period. Is there something that's too big for God? Is he faithful or not? That's the question. When a difficulty comes upon us, when something threatens our lives, the question is not, can God do it? The question is, did God tell me he is going to protect me or did he not? And does God keep his word or not? Because if God is a man of his word, excuse me for using the word man, but if he is a person of his word, then I can say, okay. I don't like what's coming on me, but I know God's going to protect me. And He's going to protect me all the way until it's my day. I don't need to be afraid of threats that come into my life of any kind. Warren Wiersbe, wonderful preacher and author, said something that's very poetic. I, I hope it speaks to you as it did to me. Before I, before I read that, look at verse 11. In facing this difficulty, what did Jesus say to Peter? He said, Peter, should I not drink the cup which my Father has given to me? In other words, this is God's will. Yeah, it's going to be hard, but it's God's will. Warren Wiersbe said this, We need never fear the cup that our Father hands to us. We need never fear the cup. In other words, when God allows a circumstance into our life, it may be fear-inducing, but we don't have to be afraid because God is the one that handed it. And He's going to take care of us as He did the person of Christ. The cup He prepares will never contain anything that will harm us. We may suffer pain and heartbreak, but He will eventually transform that suffering into glory. And if that's not enough for you to chew on, what about this comment by John Phillips? You see Peter here taking things into his own hand, right? He, he, he's got a sword, and boy, these guys are not going to arrest us. I know there's 750 of them, but I'm going to start with this one right here. 
And Jesus has to say to him, Peter, don't you know this is what I'm supposed to do? Here's the comment by John Phillips. If Peter had stayed awake in the Garden of Gethsemane, he would have known this is God's will. He wasn't paying attention while Jesus was pouring out his soul to God. He was snoozing. And, and Jesus poured out his soul, and at the end of it, he realized this, that there isn't going to be any other plan from God. This is the plan, and he's come to peace with it, and he's ready to move forward. If Peter had been awake and praying and not snoozing, he would have known this was God's will. But he was snoozing. You do not need to fear any circumstance that comes your way. Christ will protect you. Secondly, Christ is more powerful than ungodly authorities. From the book of Acts, here is a story of a king who oppressed the body of Christ, the believers. Now about that time, Herod the king, this is a different Herod from the one during the birth of Christ. About that time, Herod the king stretched out his hand to harass some from the church. Then he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And because he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded further to seize Peter also. He just he thought, hey, everybody likes me because I'm arresting Christians. So he, he went crazy with it. Now here's the end of the story. Now Herod had been very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, but they came to him with one accord, and having made Blastus, the king's personal aid, their friend, they asked for peace. They, they, these people didn't used to get along, now they're at peace. Because their country was supplied with food by the king's country. So on a set day, Herod, arrayed in royal apparel, sat on his throne and gave an oration to them, and the people kept shouting, The voice of a god and not of man! Then immediately an angel of the Lord struck him, because he did not give glory to God, and he was eaten by worms and died. But the word of God grew and multiplied. We're living in days when many folks are afraid of some of the things the government is doing or talking about doing. Can Christ protect you? I think he can. He protected these folks. This Herod did some bad stuff. He, he killed James, put some other folks in prison. What was the net effect? He died, and God's word went forward. Do you remember a fellow, if you're old enough or if you studied enough history, named Mao Zedong, who led what was called the Cultural Revolution in China? And he attempted to get rid of all intellectuals and all Western, translate that U.S. and European influence in their country, including the influence of Christianity. By some estimates, the number of Christians went from millions down to 80 or 90,000 in that whole vast country. And what's the end of the story, class? Mao Zedong is dead, and the word of God grew and multiplied. And there are so many Christians, nobody can count them. It's multiplying faster than anything you can imagine in China. Can God protect you from the authorities, the governmental authorities? Now, as with Christ, God's protection did not mean that there would not be some difficulty and some suffering and some challenge. 
no matter how powerful somebody seems to be, no matter how oppressive some changes in our government might appear, God is greater. Thirdly, Christ is more powerful than our ungodly society. Listen to what Jesus predicted to his disciples. If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. One of the things we have really got to get our mind around, Christian, and, it, and it, 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 there's a tough balance to live out, but it's so prevalent, especially today in the evangelical world, for Christians to seek the world's approval. And then they're shocked when it doesn't come. If I read Christ's words right, if we really stand up for him in a straight and true path, the world Jesus' words, the world is going to hate us. But whether they love us or hate us, it doesn't matter. <laughs> now, now again, I, I think we ought to be gracious, we ought to be kind, we ought to be loving. We shouldn't generate hate and then go, oh great, everybody hates me. I understand that. But I also know that the very truth that we preach induces people to not like us. But here's the good news. You're of God, little children, and you've overcome them, the world, because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. The world around us presses us toward unbelief, toward letting go of our belief. The world presses those who are in the world to keep them from the Christian faith. Listen to this little snippet from one of our friends around the world. And I'm going to speak a little bit generically because these messages are broadcast both on the internet and on the radio. And if you want to read the details, I'll be glad to share that with you in one of those special letters that comes to us every month. Thank you for your prayers. In December, we wrote asking you to pray for a graduate student who is working on a degree at a certain school, and when he initially visited the church eight months ago, he made it clear he was an atheist, and he was just checking up on us. Just before Christmas, we met with him to answer questions which he said were insurmountable to faith. Today, he met with us, and we are delighted to inform you that he has accepted Christ. Your prayers make a difference. Thank you. This young man works in a foreign government. Who knows? This is the missionary writing this. Who knows how God will use him to, to impact his world for Jesus in the years ahead. No matter how much the world presses on Christianity, it can't harm us unless God allows harm to come, and it can't stop the work of God. It cannot. Christ is more powerful than the ungodly society around us. Number four, Christ is more powerful than the hardships we encounter. The Apostle Paul was afflicted with a difficulty of some kind. He called it a thorn in the flesh. Plain reading would make us understand that something in his physical body was a hardship for him. 
There's another, uh, there's another inference in another book where he wrote, and he said, See what large letters I write with my own hand. It's possible that he had an affliction of his eyes. But he had some kind of affliction that he wanted to get rid of yesterday. Here's what he says. Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities or or weaknesses, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distress, for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Now, I understand that Christ can deliver us from hardships, and sometimes he does. And it's fine to pray for that. But I also know that if he doesn't deliver us from the hardship, he will deliver us through the hardship. See, we look at a, at a hardship, like a physical hardship, a chronic illness, and say, oh, my life's going to be terrible, it's going to be awful, I'm going to be in pain, on and on and on. And the Apostle Paul said, that's the way I used to think, but now I realize God wants to work in me and through me with this difficulty. So, okay, I'm honoring God. I'm glorifying God. I am living in in light of of what He wants in the world. And so I'm going to take pleasure in this. This thing is not going to overcome me. Christ is going to overcome it. Number five, Christ is more powerful than your guilty conscience. God knows that he created us with the capacity to remember. And God knows that we have all done sinful things that we look back at and think, man, I wish I hadn't done that. Um, I was tempted to write in my notes that we've all done stupid things, but frankly, that diminishes their value too much. They are sinful things that were also stupid as are all sinful things when we stop and think about it. And sometimes those things rear their head in our conscience and we think, oh, I did that bad thing. I did those things. I I was this way. You know what God says? If our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart. And he knows all things. He knows that if you truly confessed your sin, if you came to God and said, God, you know, I've remembered that wicked thing that I did, and, and I don't know if I ever confessed it, but I am confessing it now. I agree with you. It was sin. It was wrong. I repent of it. I'm, I'm moving forward. I'm not going back there. God knows if you meant that, because when you said that and you meant that, what did he do? He cleansed you. And yet sometimes, even when you do that, that thing comes back. And it goes, hey, hey, Dave, remember that thing you did? Is that going to bring us condemnation before God? No, it's not. Because God is greater than our heart. Christ knows that we have a hard time letting go. And we don't have to fear our wicked past because God is more powerful than our guilty conscience. Number six, Christ is more powerful than the enemy of our souls. Not even Satan himself can harm us unless God allows it. 
Listen to this example from the life of Peter. The Lord said, Simon, Simon, indeed Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail, and when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. Jesus knew that Peter was going to betray, and he let it happen because he also knew he was going to return. He was going to be restored by God. And he said, now, Peter, I'm not going to let Satan ruin you. Did Satan tempt Peter? Did he push Peter? Apparently he did. Was he trying to get him completely off track? Was he trying to defeat him in his self so that he'd say, I'm so terrible, I need to just go out and hang myself like Judas did? Do you know that Judas, humanly speaking, could have come back and repented? Nobody made him go out and hang himself. Peter, the scripture tells us that when Peter denied the Lord, and, and you know, in the events, and we'll see this as we come down through these events, it says, when he denied him the third time, Jesus looked at him. They were in the same space. It would be like Jesus in here with the ruling authority and Peter out there in the foyer. And, and the cock crowed right after Peter denied the third time and Jesus looked at him. Well, how'd that make you feel? And it says he wept bitterly. But God did not let Satan ruin Peter. And you need to realize that God will not let Satan ruin you. Even if he should choose to personally come against you, which given the number of people and the limited nature of Satan, he probably won't in our lifetime. But even if he did personally, God would protect. (sighs) While we should not be arrogant towards Satan, we don't need to be fearful because he's no match for our protecting Savior. And there's one more thing that I want to mention that Christ is more powerful than, and that is death. Christ is more powerful than death. Turn to 1 Corinthians 15, please. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 51. I'm having you turn here, because if you are not familiar with these verses, you need to be. You ought to circle them in your Bible and... Put some little exclamation point out there in the margin, whatever you do to to mark something so you remember it and you'll read it often. 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 51. Behold, I tell you a mystery, a truth that's not been revealed before. We shall not all die physically. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible. That's the dead believers. And we shall, who are alive, be changed, for this corruptible must put on incorruption, this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corrupt has put on incorruption, and when this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Could I just add... 
something that I think is legitimate to verse 58? Couldn't we start it this way? Therefore, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Obviously, if you are steadfast, immovable, always abounding, then death is not putting a fear on you that motivates you into some some kind of running away from, from death. Oh, victory in Jesus, my Savior forever. He sought me and bought me with his redeeming blood. He loved me ere I knew him, and all my love is due him. He plunged me to victory beneath the cleansing flood. O death, where is your sting? I've been to funerals of people who either didn't believe Or we didn't know if they believed. And I've been to the funerals of believers. And I'm here to tell you that Jesus takes away the sting of death. Is that the only witness I can get? (laughs) Jesus takes away the sting of death. Man. You know, Ione told me this morning about her daughter who's facing a very serious cancer. But she's a believer, Ione says. You see, that takes away the sting of possible death. Doesn't it? Amen. Sue's sister died of cancer. Her mom, the same. Went to be with the Lord. Her dad, I don't know. And I'm here to tell you, Jesus takes away the sting of death. And if he hasn't taken the sting of death away from you, if you are still living in fear of that, I I, I really want to challenge you to say he can. And the difference is whether or not you're a true believer, because when you believe in Christ as your Savior, when you recognize the fact that He died on the cross because I am a sinner and I can't save myself, and when I put my faith in what He did to take away my sin, He gives me a new life in exchange for my faith. And that's where that confidence comes from about death. He takes away the sting of death. Wow. You know, I spoke with somebody in our church recently who, who recently got right with the Lord. And they said, you know, I'm not afraid to die now. And, and that wasn't always true. And I thought, amen. What a wonderful thing. I've been reading a book about the Secret Service and their work to protect our presidents. And the book... It goes back, really the protection work of the Secret Service does not go back that far in our history. And so it goes back and talks about a number of the presidents earlier on. And they weren't all wonderful people to work for. And yet, the Secret Service agents have to swear that they'll use their life to save his. Wow. How much... How much ought that to encourage us? Jesus already took the bullet for us, didn't he? And now he says, this is what's true. What shall separate us from the love of Christ? 
if I've already taken the bullet for you, is tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for your sake we're killed all the day long, we're counted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. When you are fearful, just look that fear in the face and say, you're going to attack me? You and whose army? Because I have the army of heaven with the commander-in-chief. Heavenly Father, help us to face into the challenges that, that come our way daily. Some small, some large. Some we think we can handle, some we know we can't. Help us to face right into those things. And to remember that Jesus is holding our hand. And to remember that he will never leave us nor forsake us. Make us to be steadfast and immovable and always abounding in the work of the Lord, no matter what we face. I pray in Christ's name, amen.